today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. You will remember that a number of, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, the government, at the height of the housing craziness, the government put in a stress test, they called it. And the idea behind it, and we'll get a better explanation from my guest in just a moment, but the idea behind it was to make sure that as people were buying into the housing market and these prices were just incredible and their salaries may have been just on the border of disaster and being able to pay, the government decided it wanted to make sure that if something happened to the economy, we didn't have a complete housing meltdown. So they put this stress test in, which was essentially to make sure that not only could you pay for the house you were buying, but you could more than pay for the house you were buying. You could you could handle the payments if something went wrong, if interest rates went up, maybe if your job, if you lost your job and you were in between jobs, things like that. Well, that was a few years ago. Today, some realtors, mortgage brokers, and economists say it's time now to step back that the housing market has cooled a little bit, maybe too much in some cases because of this stress test. And so pressure is now being put on Ottawa to change this a little bit, to massage or maybe even eliminate the stress test. Paul Anadiak is the vice president and trustee with BDO Debt Solutions. He joins me now. Paul, thanks for doing this today. Oh, my pleasure, Scott. Uh, can you take just a couple of minutes here, a few seconds, whatever it takes, just for the people who they know about the stress test, but there are people who were not in the housing market at the time or who owned their own house and didn't pay all that close attention. They heard about the stress test. In, in brief, in Reader's Digest version, explain what this did and what, what it meant, what the stress test was. Well, basically, the stress test came into effect back in 2018. Uh, there was always previous stress tests. However, now the government wanted every mortgage coming through to go through a stress test. So what a stress test basically is for mortgages now is the bank is going to qualify you for your mortgage, uh, the amount of the mortgage that you want. However, they're going to look at uh, increasing that rate to see how you can handle it. Basically, they're going to increase it by 2% to see if you can handle an in- increase by that amount. Uh Really, looking at the, what the realtors are saying is a lot of them are saying stress test is very important, but what they're saying is that you know stress testing by 2% is a little high for them. They want to see it drop down maybe to 0.75%. Right. So the idea was you don't have to pay the extra amount. They're not, so the bank or the lender, when they increase it by 2%, you don't have to pay that amount, but you have to be able to pay that amount. Yes, you have to show the bank that you can uh, afford, if there is an interest rate increase, that you're not going to default on that mortgage down the road. Uh, you know, the bank wants your business. They don't want you to default as well. So you know, by going through the stress test, there's showing that you're really going to be an excellent customer in the future, despite what happens with our economy. Paul, do you believe that at that time, when the housing market was that hot and prices were going that crazy, do you believe that that was a good idea? I believe it was a good idea. We need to really look at our budgets uh, closely. And this is what I work with Canadians every day on, is is looking at your budget. And we tell people they need to stress test their budget, not just their mortgage. So, you know, they that they can look at, you know, unexpected emergencies that come up. Could they handle that? It's just not your mortgage that you should be stress testing. You know, take a look at your loans, your lines of credit. So those all impact you as well. So the argument now, and, and look, we, we understand that many of the people who are now 
arguing to relax the stress test are lenders and banks. So they have a, an interest in this for sure. But the argument is now interest rates have gone up a little bit. I'm not exactly sure you can tell me how much they've gone up, but they're saying, you know, the natural growth of the interest rates have done the job of the stress test. And if we keep this stress test in, we're actually now squeezing out way more people because it's still 2% higher. Um, that, that's unfair to some people. Well, you're right. They do have a vested interest because you're looking at real estate agents that uh, make their commissions off uh, higher amounts that are sold. Uh, the values increase. They're going to get more commission. Uh, same with the, the brokers as well. Uh, you know, looking at the interest rate increase, we've had roughly five interest rate increases since July of 2017. Doesn't mean it's not going to go up again. Uh, we have the potential for it to go up. I don't think it's going to go back what we saw in the early 80s when we saw interest rates closer to 20%. However, looking 10 years ago, you know, we did have mortgages that were at 6%, closer to 7%. Uh, in a former life, I worked for a financial institution in the 90s, and I remember granting mortgages at that time at 13%. So it is possible. If we had mortgage rates go back to 20%, half the people who own houses in Toronto would be living on the street in about five minutes. Oh, Certainly exactly. anyone who bought one in the last five or six years. People have to remember, <laughs> they, you know, you're right. They, they, if the mortgage rates do go up that amount, a lot of people are going to be out on the street. And that's what they're trying to prevent uh, with this. We don't need to see a housing crisis like they had in the States, where all of a sudden people were walking away from their homes because it was no longer valuable to them. Okay, so when the stress test came in, the average mortgage, give or take, would have been in the, you could get one in what, the threes? For a, for a house, so it would have put you at about five that you had to pass for the stress test? Exactly. And really what the stress test they're looking now is the average stress test is still only about 5.7%. So it is not a lot. Uh, the stress test, you're not stress testing at 10%. It's, it's a lot lower than that. So where would, from your perspective, if the argument is as interest, as inflation, as interest rates naturally go up, that removes the need for the stress test because the rates are now higher. Where would be the number that you say a mortgage rate would be that we could practically or we should practically think about taking these out? Actually, I think the stress test should still remain. In really? Okay. I think, I think it is, it's, a, it's a great idea that the stress test is there. You know, people need to, Canadians really need to take a look at when they're buying a home, it's not how much is the maximum I can afford, how much is my payment going to be comfortable? And I think that's where a lot of Canadians get away from the uh, housing market when they're looking at homes. You know, everyone wants to have the perfect home as well. However, you have to be able to afford that home. And I think really that's how Canadians should focus their home buying moving forward. I can tell you, Paul, that when, when my wife and I bought our first house, and this was 25 years ago, roughly now, it was for a lot less than I could get one for today, to be fair. I don't want to make it sound like it's apples and apples. But when we went to the bank for that first time to get approved for a loan, the amount the bank told me back then that I could get to buy a house, I looked at that person. I said, you are out of your, <laughs> you're out of your tree for saying I could have that much money. It was an unfathomable amount. And now, I mean, that number would be vastly higher if I was going in as a first timer now. And I think your point is bang on though. I think a lot of people see that number. Let's say they go to the bank and they get approved for $500,000 and they, instead of saying, oh, I'll buy a $250,000 house, I'll find a, a fixer up or a starter home. They go, oh, I can buy a house for 500 grand. And that is the problem is that goes right to the very edge of what they can afford. 
Exactly. I do have friends that are real estate agents as well, and I know a lot of times talking to them, it's when people come in looking for homes, you know, they'll ask, have you been pre-qualified for a financial institution? Not, you know, what amount are you comfortable paying, but, you know, what was the maximum amount that the bank actually qualified you for? And they'll start showing listings at that top value instead of something a lot lower. And there's also, and funny because I just had this discussion with my daughter the other day, we were chatting for down the road for buying a house and, and the discussion was, well, don't forget, you know, you need to fix a roof every once in a while and uh, an appliance blows out or this or that happens. If every dime that you've ever in, taken in is tied in to go just to your mortgage, you got big problems inevitably. Big problems, and you're bringing up children as well. So when people forget sometimes, you know, children can be costly at times, and, you know, you want to assist them as well. So it's not just the work that needs to be done around the house, but there's always those unexpected life events as well that come into play. So it needs to be tied into a broader financial plan. Uh, you know, your mortgage is only one aspect of your financial plan. Uh, you know, your budget, are you going to want a new car down the road as well? You don't want to be paying a mortgage and not be able to afford transportation after. So, Paul, you, uh, and look, I, I generally agree with everything you've said so far because uh, I tend to be conservative when it comes to finances and don't want to put myself in that position. However, uh, and, and to that point, you could say that the stress test inoculates lenders and the government and the, the country against a massive problem if the economy were to suddenly take a giant dump and then everyone's stuck. But there are the others on the other side who would say, well, why is the government the people's babysitter? Why is it the nanny state? If people want to risk their own financial future, why are we getting in the way? If they want to do something stupid, let them. Well, it, it affects the economy as a whole. Again, looking down in the States, when we had the situation of the housing crisis there, the last thing we need to do right now is, you know, people walking away from their homes and the market gets flooded. You know, looking at the supply and demand, all of a sudden, if the market is flooded, the prices will actually come down at that point. You know, if you want to buy a home, you know, they put certain, you know, percentages in for mortgage insurance. You know, you have to save up a certain amount. Home-time buyers, you know, we don't want people automatically coming out of school and getting into million-dollar mortgages. You know, it's part of your life planning. You know, what stage in life are you? Where are you going to be five years down the road? Where do you want to live five years down the road? It's not we shouldn't be at a society now that we just, you know, jump at the first opportunity that we see because we believe it's going to be a great home to live in. Well, uh, and you know, it's an unpopular opinion that you sort of allude to there, but there are those who would say, look, it, it, you know, society is not always fair. Not every single person should own a house. And I, you know, you can see that argument. Not everybody with their job, with their lifestyle, with whatever, not everybody, it's the dream and it's what we've been told is the dream, but not everybody perhaps should be getting into the housing market. I a hundred percent, a hundred percent agree with you. You know, people can take the time to rent over a period of time. There are some great rental units out there as well. People get into the housing market just so it can be an investment as well, so they can rent to people, you know. Where you live is what you make it. It's not always about that, the fact that you own it. Should this, let me throw a curveball at you here, because if we're talking about this with housing, that we want to help protect people from their own disasters uh, and also protect the economy, should this be extended to other things? And, and like, you're really getting into a nanny state if you do this, but no, you know, should we be having stress tests on other big purchases, on cars or on uh, cottages or on, I mean, pick your other, I mean, I'm not talking about a pack of cigarettes or a bottle of 
beer or something, but for big purchases, should we be extending this elsewhere? Well, the banks have regulations when they are lending on cars as well. You have to meet their servicing guidelines. Uh, what you know, so it's basically already in place there. So, yeah, we don't want an anti state. You know, we want the economy to flow as is. However, the stress test is 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 an excellent uh, tool. You know, for other lending. As I said, we do stress tests in my, in my job every day. You know, when we sit down with people on their budgets, we talk about affordability. Uh, the purpose of us doing the stress test is because we counsel people on, you know, building things such as an emergency fund. You know, see if you start building an emergency fund now. If you stress test, there could be an issue down the road. Well, you've built up that emergency fund. The stress test is an excellent tool right across the economy. What is the reaction, though, when you do sit down with people? Are most people, when you explain the situation and explain the stress test and what it's for, are most people who are looking to buy a house and are really facing a tough time now because that extra amount has made it difficult, are they very understanding and say, you know what, yeah, that makes a lot of sense? Or are most of them saying, this is the stupidest thing ever. If I just bought five years ago, I could have avoided this. Well, no one likes hearing no. You know, So as soon as uh, someone is told no, their backs are going to get up right away. A lot of times they won't as well. Uh, the Real Estate Association is is uh, correct that a certain percentage of Canadians are now getting declined. Uh, uh, being declined for a mortgage, you know, doesn't prevent you from, you know, getting a mortgage down the road. It just means you have some more work to do to get to that point. Do you believe that any part of this, when the government put this in, I mean, clearly it was to protect people from overextending themselves and getting into these financial difficulties. Do you believe that any part of this was also to do with trying to cool the market so that it made housing more affordable for people, for other people? Definitely. It was put into place to cool the housing markets in uh, Toronto and Vancouver, and they have cooled. However, other regions of Canada are, are still hot with their, their markets, even looking locally down in London uh, with family members that live there. I know that the real estate market is there. Look here in Hamilton. You know, who would have thought years ago that the average uh, home price would be half a million dollars in Hamilton? Hmm. So the, the, the market is still hot. Yeah, and it's, an, it's ironic, isn't it, uh, Paul, that the, the move to put the stress test in, which was to cool the market and to allow more people potentially to get in, as interest rates have now gone up and you still have the stress test, it may have also made it more difficult for people to get in. I, I don't know if it's six one half dozen of another, but it hasn't tipped the scale one way or the other. No, it really hasn't tipped the scale, and that's one of the reasons that I believe that there really should be no changes to the stress test right now. You know, we're not having a lot of, uh, you know, outcries from consumers. What we're seeing is we're seeing the economists, you know, the real estate associations, they're the ones who are pushing uh, for the change right now because it really impacts them. Paul Anadiak, the Vice President and Trustee with BDO Debt Solutions. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it, Scott. Thank you. It's a... um if you are, I'm not, thankfully, uh, I am not in the housing market right now. I'm not a, I'm not one of those people who is a first time buyer or hopeful first time buyer. And so I acknowledge that I'm speaking to this, not completely feeling the same sting that those people who are on the outside trying to get in would be feeling. And so I understand to a degree, uh, though, because if you can try and imagine, I can understand why someone who is not able to buy a house right now, because they have some savings, they've tried to been working at it, 
but maybe they haven't been at their job long enough, or maybe they're not making quite enough. And that extra 2% on the mortgage, boy, that can make a difference. That can make a difference. And you feel like you're being squeezed out. And so I, I, I mean, I am thankful. I am thankful that I'm not one of those people right now who is on the outside looking in, trying to get on the real estate escalator. It is, it is so tough right now. And the other day for, I don't know what it was for. I was not looking to buy a house, but I was on realtor.ca. I can't remember why I was and playing around and set the, if you ever gone on there, it's like the old MLS thing where you can go and look at all the houses around the area. Go ahead and go on MLS or realtor. It's called realtor.ca now. Go on realtor.ca, set the parameters that you want a house and set it for a maximum of $250,000 in the Hamilton area and see how you do. Answer, not well. Now go and set it for $350,000 and see how you do. Answer, same thing. Now you may find a few more, but you're talking now in a lot of cases about almost a fixer upper at $350,000. As Paul said, if you're of a certain vintage, if you've lived in this area for a certain period of time, the idea that the average house price in Hamilton, Ontario would one day be half a million dollars is brain exploding. Can you imagine if we, if you had had some sort of psychic ability and said in 2019, the average house price was going to be half a million dollars in the city. How much money would you have gone and borrowed from your bank to buy up as many properties as you could have five, 10, 15 years ago saying, yeah, it might be 150,000 now, but I'm going to make 400,000 in profit. It, it is, it is nutty. And for those people who I, I understand the people who really want this stress test to be reduced so they can try and get in. I also, however, can understand what Paul says. We don't really want to go back to the days like we saw in the States where people were walking away from their homes because something goes wrong with the economy. And now, uh oh, uh oh, I can't afford this. It's a very difficult spot. If you are trying to get into the market, it is a very difficult, difficult spot. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Toronto Star did a great piece, which was followed by a bunch of other papers about the LCBO and theft. And things had been going poorly theft-wise at LCBO stores because of protocols that were put in place for the safety of staff. And we'll talk about that in just a second with my guest who's coming on. Thieves had become quite emboldened, especially in the Toronto area with LCBOs. And knowing that apparently nothing was going to happen, they would simply often, sometimes up to, I think it was 9,000 times in 2018 almost, walk into an LCBO store, grab a bunch of booze off the counter, usually expensive booze, put it in a basket, don't even flinch and just walk right out the door. People would be staring at these people, carrying out six bottles of two or $300 scotch, Nobody would do anything. The thief would just walk right out the door. They'd be caught on video camera. Didn't matter. Nobody would stop them. Nobody would talk to them. Nobody would accost them. Nobody would arrest them. And they'd be gone. And it was costing millions of dollars to the LCBO, aka to you, the taxpayer. We'll get to that in a moment. 
But now the LCBO says that it is ramping up security measures and it is going to do what it can to cut down on these thefts, these brazen thefts that the thieves again just decided, look, if no one's ever going to even raise a finger to stop me, I'm going to drink well. I'm not drinking the cheap stuff. I'm not stealing a small bottle under my coat. I'm loading up a basket and walking out. Stephen O'Keefe runs Bottom Line Matters. It is a consulting company for business security. He joins us now. Stephen, thanks for doing this today. Well, thank you. Uh, This has been going on for a few years now with LCBO stores. Uh, Would it be fair or cynical of me to suggest that the fact that the Toronto Star story came out and pointed this out, and in fact, it was more than a story, it was a series, that when that came out, that that has almost exclusively led to the changes that are now apparently going to be going on. Yeah, I, I think you can safely say that the the exposure to the issue and the you know the the discussions that have taken place in the media certainly told them that they have um, they have to enhance their program. The reason I say enhance rather than change is there's some things um, that the public may not be aware of in terms of the nine thousand incidents that were reported to police, and that's that some of those have been arrested because. They had photographs or videos of the culprit, and uh, those reports to police were um, active active calls for action. So police were investigating some of those, and as we'll get into the discussion, you'll probably bring up a few where there's been major thefts of 9,000, yeah. I'm sorry, 90,000 or, or more. Well, I mean, there were stories that, again, the Star had highlighted where people, uh, these criminals who had gotten so bold, had walked right past the staff into the staff loading area where the really expensive stuff was kept and just helped themselves and walked out and nobody did anything. Right. Yeah. So that's the issue at hand. Um, and, and it's not um, dramatically different from any other retailer who uh, it insists that staff remain at, at arm's length from these type of incidents. Explain that for on, a second, Stephen. Explain well, why they would do that. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, let's say there's three groups of employees that you can have. One is what you're referring to as staff, the people that these brazen thieves were working past, walking past, would be regular sales employees. The second group is an investigations team that uh, almost every large uh, and mid-sized retailers have, in-house security, that uh, they're either uh, plainclothes floor walkers, uh, or investigators plus plain close floor uh, walkers. And then the third is visible um, logoed security guards or off-duty police who are doing a, a pay duty on behalf of the retailer. So the ones we're talking about uh, are staff. And staff are not tasked with that type of um, confrontation. So there, there may have been, and what I was talking about in the past in terms of preventative measures, that's the aggressive hospitality piece where you're not making an accusation of crime, but you're trying your best to uh, dissuade the person from stealing or going in the back room, as you suggested. Yeah, I, and, and look, there's part of this that I clearly can understand, uh, which is that if you have a staff person who is stocking shelves or at the counter and someone decides to steal something and the staff person leaps into action without any training and without any weapons or without anything else, they could end up hurt. I mean, that, that's not far-fetched to imagine. Right. So so I, that part I... That part I get. The part that I've struggled with since this story came out and since we've heard this has been going on for such a long time 
is that if the LCBO has known about this and doesn't want its staff doing these things, why has it not, or why would it not, why would it not make sense then to bring in security people who are tasked with that kind of thing? Yeah, so that's the question that every retailer faces. And, you know, there's peaks and valleys in terms of the budget and the investment into loss prevention. And some of that is actually influenced by lawsuits and the requirement to get it 100% right because a thief doesn't have to be, um, you know, very precise in how they commit their crime. But uh, loss prevention uh, or resources protection have to be exact. They can't make a mistake. A false arrest could cost the business, um, well, from a, from a direct standpoint, it can cost the business thousands of dollars in a lawsuit, but indirectly, from a reputation standpoint, that's not the type of thing that you want happening or you want the public to, to see is that somebody was falsely accused of something. So you have to be 100% right. And that takes uh, a lot of training. It's not just anybody that can put on uh, you know, a, a regular uh, pair of jeans and a, and a hoodie and walk around an LCBO and be successful in uh, detecting theft. You can't arrest somebody for a suspicion of theft you have to be able to say, you're under arrest, you're coming to me, you're in my custody, I'm turning you over to the police, like you can't leave. So you have to be that sure. When we talk though about why would it take this long to do this, would I be wrong to suggest that this would be unlikely to happen with a private business? You work, I'm sure, with private businesses. If it's, if it's your skin, Stephen, if you own your own store and someone is coming in and stealing stuff from you regularly it would seem to me the private business would be very motivated to bring in that security guard and try and stop that from happening. Yeah, so let me, uh, just to be clear, LCBO is not my client. Um, And you're asking my opinion in a private business and the businesses I have worked for in the past, would they have made the decision quicker? Absolutely. Yeah, And, and, and this I think is part of what is frustrating to a lot of people, uh, is that a public business would allow would have allowed this to go on for longer, letting what our tax dollars ultimately walk out the door. That that just that seems as though again to use the example that if you don't have skin in the game, you may not be as motivated to fix this. They are fixing it now, but it, it has taken a while. Yeah, they're fixing it uh, by enhancing the program. As I said, they're not changing anything. They had loss prevention who were working some of these investigations. Um, but obviously, it's a lot more, if you can do a balance of having some of these reactive cases worked, like the 9,000 pieces of evidence you have trying to put those together, that's great. If you can have somebody in the store to be able to make the apprehension at the time, that's a great balance as well. Now, let's, let's just talk about that uh, organized crime group that was hitting them. They would never have been arrested with $90,000 worth of product or know about that had they not been able to um, see multiple situations going back and reviewing video. They wouldn't have been able to arrest them for that amount because they would have basically caught them with three or four bottles of scotch. Um, Going back, they're able to build a much larger case. But they weren't sitting back not doing anything. They just didn't have visible security uh, or, or plainclothes security arresting people on every incident. They were doing it reactively and reporting it to police. True enough. The, the, the flip side of that could be that they could have never gotten away with stealing $90,000 worth of booze had they had a security person there to get them earlier on. You're 100% right.
So the the wording that has been used by the LCBO, and we got an email from them uh, today. Let me just see if I can find it here. This was um, our producer, Liz, tried to get someone from the LCBO to come on today. Um, they declined that, but they said this. In order to ensure staff and customer safety, the LCBO has strengthened its shop theft action plan. It expands on three existing main priorities. One, increasing security personnel at select locations. That's what you've referred to. Two, implementation of new and industry-leading technology to combat theft. And three, ongoing mandatory training for employees in order to take safe actions and be credible witnesses when a theft occurs. You've referred to that as well. You're not going to get involved, but you're going to watch and see and be able to do that. But let me go to the middle one. The implementation of new and industry-leading technology to combat theft. What is out there right now that would fall into that category that might be something that could be, and we don't know if it'll be used, but what is the modern technology right now to try and combat theft? Yeah, and I can tell you what it is. Uh, I don't know if LCBO uses this technology, and there's some technology that I won't talk about. And the reason I won't is because um, the first thing that a thief will do when they hear this is how the system works is try to beat the system. Of course. And we saw that, we saw that happening. So, so we have to be careful that we're not, um, you know, talking Fair enough. Uh, no, I get that. Yeah, I get that. People. So uh, CCTV, uh, cameras in the store for sure are something that are used. Um, there is uh, a, a camera has the capability, well, the software, the, the platform that a camera uses in order to record has the capability of uh, facial recognition, so biotechnology to be able to, or biometrics technology to be able to identify known thieves from that particular business. So it would not be a question of one business, ABC company, sharing it with, uh, you know, another company uh, like like a Sears. You wouldn't share uh, facial recognition uh, information like that. But certainly ABC company can uh, put in photographs of known thieves from their location and that camera can identify that and send a signal to a loss prevention person on a cell phone and show the live video feed of the person if the loss prevention person's in that store they can basically watch their cell phone watch the person from a distance and arrest them so you don't have to physically be there every second with the person stealing and would that record it then so that could be evidence Oh yeah, anything that goes through the platform is recorded and it's evidence. Okay. And it's it's maintained for quite some time. And are this are they are the closed circuit cam- not to be ridiculous, but are the closed circuit cameras better these days than most of the I don't know why it is that every time a police picture from a closed circuit camera is shown it always looks like a camera from the moon landing. Are they getting any better that we actually get high definition views or close to it of the people? Yeah, you'll probably see the better video from the people who are prosecuted and shown evidence in court. The ones where they get away and the police have to use the public are generally the ones where they don't know who it is because of the quality. Right. If they had okay. better quality, they wouldn't have to show you. The, um, some of there's, the other, I, sorry, also, go ahead. Sorry, just in terms of technology. Yeah. So EAS or electronic article surveillance um, is, is used as well. And those are those hidden, uh, it, they can be embedded security chips. Um, that, uh, you know, either ring at the door or if they have a beacon tracker on them, they're getting, they're getting um, much more elaborate in terms of their functionality. And if uh, you want to refer your, your uh, listeners to uh, some projects at MIT, MIT is talking about uh, the technology radio frequency identification 
to where uh, these tags are used in the supply chain to say where your product is, either on a ship or in a distribution center or in a store or in a thief's possession outside of the store. So that technology is getting much better as well. Does that mean that if I buy a bottle of something that the they could track it to my house? So they can't track it to your house, but as you're leaving, they will know that that has not been paid for because there's no information that's been sent to the tag that says it's been paid. Okay. So out on the street, no. I mean, there's no there's no reader. You need a physical reader. They're not read by satellite. So you would actually need a reader right there at the store to be able to say that this uh, uh, this item has passed the reader at the back end. And then on the sales floor, when it sits there, inventory is basically done with somebody who walks around with a scanner and scans the entire store in minutes rather than you mm. know, full day. There have been some suggestions uh, of other more elaborate, or I don't know if the word is draconian measures. I don't think the draconian is a fair word for it, but that would be very effective, I would think. I just don't know if customers would go for it. One of them was the old consumer's distributing model, which I believe was the LCBO model way before, which was you had to fill out a piece of paper and go to the counter and they would then hand you your bottle. I don't know if that would be something they would ever, I don't think they would consider that anymore because it seems very old school. And I don't know that customers would like it. The other is just setting up like locked doors where they have to buzz you through in order to get you out even. But my question with those kind of things or anything else along those lines, I would assume part of what they have to consider the LCBO does is our customers going to blanch at these things as well. Right, and so that's interesting. So LCBO does have a, a security gate, a swing arm that opens up as you walk in so that you can't exit that same way you have to pass an employee. I'm not sure if they have it in every one of their stores. We're testing a system, uh, and if you look at you know the, the warehouse uh, club environments, and I don't want to promote any one particular retail brand, um, <laughs> yeah. but if you, if you consider what happens there, you, your ID is checked on the way in, you walk through, you shop as you're exiting, there's a person who stands there and looks at uh, every person's receipt. They might scan a couple of items, look for it on the receipt, but they're, they're trying to check. We're actually uh, trying to coordinate so that these swing arms that open, open when you scan your membership, you don't have to have a person there, shop at will, and then when you go through the cash registers and pay for merchandise, you have to scan your receipt as you exit, and the security arms are also at the exit and will open to allow you to to exit. Similar to the Amazon food idea they're doing right now, where it just, as you walk out, it just pays for everything on your visa or on your Amazon bill. Right. This is not a payment system. It would operate in conjunction with that payment system, like like the Amazon to go. It is interesting stuff. And me, you know, you just you just destroyed my my belief because I thought those people standing at the checkout were just there to ensure that I had taken all the products I had purchased, and they were looking out only for my well being. They were there to wish you a happy day. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they always told me. I believe it. I'm naive. I, I was hoping that that was the case. Uh, it is a fascinating story. There's lots written about it. There's lots of stories online about this LCBO doing whatever it's going to do to try and combat these liquor thefts. Um, Stephen O'Keefe from Bottom Line Matters. You can find him online at bottomlinematters.ca. Stephen, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Take care. Look, when we have tens of thousands into the millions of dollars of booze being stolen, 
and nothing is done or seemingly very little is done that they are walking out of a store and able to get away. Now, there have been some arrests, but keep one thing in mind. This is a public company. That money, those the cost of booze probably isn't going to go down if they catch all this, but that the profits are supposed to be going into public programs. All the things we talk about every day here on the show and elsewhere, the money that we don't have to pay for these things, the cuts that we have to have. Now, I understand this. the theft amount is not going to be significant enough to pay for a new hospital or something like that. But ultimately, this is tax dollars. These are tax dollars that are walking out the door. And until now, very little seemingly has been done about it. It's about, I mean, it, it has taken a long time. Thank goodness the Toronto Star wrote this, because as Stephen says, that seems to have motivated them. But holy cow, thank goodness they're finally getting around to doing something, and hopefully it's effective. If we had another segment on this, I'd love to ask you. We're not going to do this right now. You can send me an email. If they did something that was a little more strong, if they put you in doors that would only unlock to let you out once you'd paid, that kind of thing, would you be okay with that? I, I'd love to know that kind of stuff. I'd love to see, that may come. That may happen one of these days if these measures they're taking don't work, but they got to do something because it is ridiculous when someone can just walk into a store, walk out of a store without paying and no one can do anything. That is goofy. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. It is two days, two days. doesn't seem possible, especially when we're talking about a massive winter storm here, but it is two days from now that pitchers and catchers are going to report for spring training. Baseball is starting. The spring is allegedly here. And, you know, they always say that when spring training starts, that's the time when the buds start to bloom and we're heading towards the home stretch of winter. Doesn't seem like it at all, but anyway, two days away. Uh, if you're a Ju- If you're a Jays fan... This may not be the most optimistic of spring trainings. <laughs> I think uh, um, the less said about that, the better. <laughs> this this may not be the year that you have to clear a day in December for a World Series parade. Just saying. So there's that working to working for you. You don't have to book a day off in November or December for some kind of parade. However, there is a big, big story in the world of baseball right now that is creating all kinds of discussion about what it means. And that is free agency. Back at the end of the season, there were a number of guys, uh, the two big ones being Bryce Harper and Manny Machado, who are two of the, they were seen as two of the most sought after, most desirable, most talented, youngest, with more of their career ahead of them, guys in the free agency market. But there was Craig Kimbrell, who was the closer for Boston, won the World Series last year. There's Dallas Keuchel, who's a great pitcher or has been a great pitcher. Bunch of free agents, and they're not signed. Two days before training camp, spring training opens, these guys are not signed. They don't have a team. And this has led to all kinds of discussions about whether this is baseball changing and looking at these guys saying, wait a second, why are we paying some guy $40 million a year, potentially $30 million? And other people saying, no, no, this is collusion. Come on, the owners are getting together to bring money down, to bring costs down. We've been down this road once many years ago. Uh, this is happening again. Let me bring in Maury Brown. He is a baseball writer, a national baseball writer. He's written for just about every paper you can imagine, including USA Today Sports and all kinds of others. He's a member of the National uh, Baseball Writers Association of America. Contributes everywhere. Maury, thanks for doing this today. Hey, thanks for having me. 
So, I mean, look, you've spent the whole winter probably watching as closely as anybody else to see what's going to happen with Bryce Harper and Manny Machado, especially. They're right at the top of the list, and they're still waiting to find a team. Now, I read today that the San Francisco Giants and the Golden State Warriors are now trying to lure him down there. Regardless, he's not signed. Do you look at this and say, this is baseball getting smarter as far as how it spends its money and wiser and maybe a little more spendthrift? Or do you look and start having that C word flashing around in your head? Well, first of all, I think you have to look at those two individuals differently maybe than the rest of the class. So you have to ask yourself, well, if Manny Machado and and Bryce Harper on side, um, okay, maybe that's because their agents are seeking deals that are exceptionally long and, and huge amounts of money. And we've looked at this and examined this. And look, there, there are people like me that looked at some of these albatross contracts with older veterans and said, those are simply inefficient. And baseball is saying, you know, we started to look at that and we think we get more value for our money with younger players up front. But the, the situation with Manny Machado and, and Bryce Harper, I think, are largely driven by um, the amount of money that's there. And their agents, I think, are trying to hold out for a big deal. The collusion, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I've talked to people... Um, high up at both the commissioner's office and um, with the players. And there doesn't seem to be a sense that they can prove that there's collusion. It's a lot different than in the 80s when we had the collusions, not one, but two, but three rulings against the owners on that. And it's something that looks very large and is a shadow. But you get a lot of conversations around what's called groupthink. And I don't know if that technically you know, is defined as collusion. So it's kind of two different things, guys. I mean, I, I really think that there's something here um, that is completely different, and that's that they're viewing the, the market entirely different. And when I say they, I mean the owners. Well, groupthink, interesting you bring that up, because uh, even people who aren't necessarily diehard baseball fans, they probably all saw that Brad Pitt movie Moneyball a few years ago when it came out, which was about the Oakland A's and and about what they did. And that, um, that spawned, I mean, exactly what you're talking about, groupthink. Everybody now decided that's how we were going to play baseball. And it seems as though that's happening. It happens in hockey. A team wins a Stanley Cup and everybody has to imitate what that team did. And and that's an interesting thought you bring up that somehow this is not necessarily that they've all decided that they're necessarily just going to spend less, but that they're all thinking along the same way because most of the general managers and most of the presidents have all, or many of them have come from the same school of baseball and and if that's the case then they're probably going to think a lot a lot alike yeah and i mean look let's be honest about this it doesn't hurt that they're saving a bunch of money along the way nope and it's like oh hey we could go ahead and invest here and we're going to get a better deal on it i think that something that's really telling about Manny machado and bryce harper is something that you said up front which is that they're both very young so look i mean i, I look do you give 10 years and as much money as the Angels did to Albert Pujols? I don't know if that's a good idea. Um, is there something different to, about giving a longer-term deal to one of these younger guys? Yes, I think that there's very much a difference. And we can talk about value, and we can talk about you know clubhouse makeup with Manny Machado and all those other things. But in terms of their age and what they produce, I think that that is um, something that's largely outside of that discussion. But I do wonder about guys like Dallas Keuchel and certainly Craig Kimbrell. And there are some, some discussions about whether this is something, you know, maybe it's on the agent side, maybe it's something on the owner side. There's probably a little bit of truth to both of those, but there's very much a difference in this. And, and the reason I say this is because not only have owners said it, but the commissioner told me directly that there's analytics that show that they're getting more value out of younger guys. 
and that's where they're going to put it. And that the players have already come forward as part of their pace of play initiative. They expanded outside of pace of play and said, look, we'd like to focus around more of the younger players and getting more money there. So that's going to be a huge part of the next collective bargaining agreement. How can the players try and get more money up front that would then cascade into free agency? Uh, I want to talk about the the secondary folks in just a second, but just because they are such a talking point right now, just to stick with Machado and Bryce Harper for just one minute here, I, I saw something, Major League Baseball and the MLB Network had something the other day. This is their research, not mine. I want to give credit where credit is due. Um, they pointed out that eight players since 2009, maybe even before then, eight players, period, pardon me, have signed $200 million contracts in baseball history. For all the years that those eight guys have played after signing those contracts, they have won one single World Series title. And that was A-Rod in 2009. He was a good player that year, but he was on a very good Yankees team as well. You're talking about groupthink. I think it's also analytics and all those things. Surely the owners and the managers are looking at this saying, wait a second, it hasn't proven that having one of these enormous contracts is actually going to make us a winner? Well, first of all, I would say that that's indicative of baseball itself. Look, as a sport, no other sport um, is less star-driven than baseball. It really requires a, a, a roster that's evenly you know, built, um, especially you know, when it comes to the pitching rotation and, and your now relievers. It's much different than the NBA, say, that I can put LeBron James and I can put him on, put him on a horrible team and immediately make them a contender or take them off of a team and make them horrible again. It just, you know, baseball doesn't work that way. But I would say to, to that um, logic, look, the idea is if you are in a particular window, right, if you're in the 80 to 85 to 90 win area and you want to find a player that can be a difference maker, not only for this season, this upcoming season, but multiple seasons in general, then you can do that. Look, wrapping up a player for an extended period of time can actually have some benefits. Is it always that way? No. But the thing that was interesting that you brought up A-Rod is it comes back to his age. He was younger. So I think that that has a little bit to do with it. Even the Cano deal, while um, you know, there's certainly the PED component that goes along with it, what he did with the Mariners, although it didn't affect things to getting them into the postseason, he was certainly an upgrade for them. And was I think a you know in terms of the money that was spent did what he came there to do, so it is once again overall roster construction. Do we hang it all on one player? No. Is it something where you can take a great player and add them to a good team and get them over the hump? Absolutely. Yeah, the, the players, by the way, who have signed these two hundred million dollar contracts, and I think some of the names will be interesting to people for what's happened to these players. Uh, Giancarlo Stanton, who's still playing and playing very well for the Yankees. Alex Rodriguez, who signed two $200 million contracts. His life is horrible, obviously, Maury. I mean, they have had to do that twice. Um, Miguel Cabrera, who has been hurt quite, well, quite a bit. I don't know if quite a bit is fair, but he's been hurt. He missed most of last season. Alex Pujols, who signed it. Uh, He is a shadow of his former self. Robinson Cano, who just got traded and never has really, I don't think, played to that level. Joey Votto, you can argue for him. And Prince Fielder, who's now out of the game. Uh, not only, as you say, are these guys, have they not necessarily led to World Series titles, when they signed them, how they signed them, they were broken down, a lot of these guys, long before those contracts ended. Yeah, I mean, look, the fielder thing is, and I, I'm going to say it's an outlier. Sure. And that's just a, you know, a sad story in and of itself. Um, the pool wholesale, I didn't, I think, was there was a marketing component. And look, that's something that's important to, to bring into this. Look, 
right now, I mean, I'm just going to talk about the market in general. I, I read, wrote about this today as part of this discussion. Attendance was down, and it's been down a few years. And some of it is cyclical, right? As teams move up and down, and you know, if you're the Dodgers, you want the Dodgers to be successful because they play in a fifty thousand seat venue. But that stuff moves up and down. But last year was a significant drop. Um, part of that was the Marlins. Part of that was the Blue Jays. The Blue Jays decided that they wouldn't flood the secondary market. And a lot of it was the weather in the spring, which was horrible by every measure. But if you're a team right now, if you're the Giants, I can't market you know, Bryce Harper if Bryce Harper winds up there. If I'm the Phillies, I can't market whoever it is. I can't market Manny Machado or anything. That makes it difficult. And the question that the players are having right now is, where is this will to win? What happened with the market? Why has it has it changed? If it's about younger players, great. How are we going to market that stuff? You guys go ahead and put your money in that bucket. That's fine. But you're going to make it more difficult to market the game itself. I don't know how excited the average fan is about uh, you know a prospect unless it's you know Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Which you know to the to the Blue Jays credit, there's there's something there. So. It is very difficult, and I can see arguments on the player side. I can see arguments on the owner side. In terms of just those two, uh, those two players, well, I think we're going to see what happens here. Do they get 10 years? Maybe. Do they get something more along the lines of eight and more average money across those years? Probably. Scott Boris, who I believe still represents uh, Bryce Harper. I mean, back there were reports back when he first, when this process first started back in the fall, late fall. That what you talk about with marketing and off the field things were a big component of what he was pitching. That if you bring in Bryce Harper, you're going to sell X number of seats and you're going to move this many jerseys and blah blah blah. It wasn't just a baseball thing that he was selling. Yeah, and you got that when with Albert Pujols in St. Louis. I mean, they really there was a lot around it. And I talked at the time before he moved to to the West Coast to the to the Cardinals, and they had done an incredible amount of marketing around him. And there's absolutely going to be that. But at the end of the day, right, the owners and the managers, they're like, that's fine. Um, that's really great and everything. And we'll move the needle a little bit that way. But what are we going to do in terms of getting wins on the field? And that's where it's at, right? And, I mean, um, it, there's just a host of things. The, the bigger question is going to be, after this is all said and done, whether Harper would have been better off taking the, uh, the initial offer from the Nationals and instead passing on it and come in with a lesser deal. He may spin that however which way that it is. You know, I'm going to get into a better situation, better long-term deals, better weather, whatever it is that he goes into. But, look, there's that. The Machado situation, I think, has a little bit to do with clubhouse makeup. There's concerns around that. How that would work in, let's say, with the Yankees, who haven't had a needed full base. Um, you know, I, I don't know how it would work within that system. So those are the things. But I get back to the overall. I mean, Craig Kimbrell should not be sitting on the sidelines at this point. No. Dallas Keuchel shouldn't be either. Next year, and, and one more thing about the marketing, because next year, unless he signs an extension, I believe Mike Trout is going to be a free agent after this year. And I, I look at Bryce Harper, and he you know, can look like a scowling guy. He doesn't always look like a warm and cuddly player, which for whatever that matters, I mean, he hits the ball. But um, Machado, as you say, there were some questions about Clubhouse. Mike Trout comes across like not only the perfect player, but the perfect guy. And I'm wondering how the personality plus the play do you expect will factor into that? Because I, I look at him, and I think he, he, I don't know how much better he is than Bryce Harper, but boy, I think he's going to be a much easier sign. Well, look, I mean, Harper has not exactly helped himself over the last couple of seasons. I mean, his performance has actually gone down, so there's a lot of discussions around how that has been. 
and whether he's going to regress or whether changing zip goes is really going to make him that much better. But look, I mean, Trout has certainly been consistent, and I mean, he is all that sort of thing. Look, does he want to be the face of baseball in terms of being out in front of it, like we've seen with Bryce Harper with T-Mobile and some other you know, sponsorship deals? No, he's made it very clear he doesn't want to be that guy. It's not that he's, you know, doesn't want to be a nice guy and be part of baseball. He's just not going to be an extrovert that way. So, look, yeah, I mean, he certainly, you know, you're never going to hear a bad word about the guy. Um, so I think that there's absolutely some truth to that. But it's ultimately, I think, when it comes down to the field, you're, you're measuring things in a, a number of different ways. Now, will, will Trout get a deal, I still think, irrespective of all of that, I still think that there's going to be a lot of discussions about long-term deals and the investments in them. And so there's this real trying to drive the market back in terms of the efficiency. There was Look, there's, the owners are making money hands over fist. And the logic has been, well, you know what? They know what they're getting into. Nobody expects a player to be performing at the same level that they did when we signed them on year one that they will in year 10. So we'll just eat that money or we'll figure out what we're going to do. We'll move them in some way and shuffle money back. Well, we thought that that was largely the way that it was going to work. But I think that the owners went, you know what? Why are we doing that? Why are we doing that with some of these veterans? Why do we have these albatross contracts that hamstring us? And that is going to be the discussion along with the player saying, look, you can get a guy now and you can win a World Series. How badly do you really want to win? Is that what the questions are going to boil down to? And those are the two sides. When you talk to the players and when you talk to the commissioner, those are where the battle lines are really being drawn. Maury, last thing before I let you go. Uh, Baseball... I can't imagine will be excited, and I'm talking about front office, uh, head office. They will not be excited if spring training or even regular season rolls around and their big free agents are not playing, right? Well, no. I mean, of course they want to see those ones, you know, see them sign. But for one thing, you know, the Players Association isn't happy about this, but they, they will tell you every which way to Sunday that they do not get involved in individual deals, and I think that that works the same way. Um, at the commissioner's office, they're not going to monkey around with that stuff. Just gets into all kind of, you talk about collusion, that's collusionary on, kind of in reverse. But, of course, they're not happy about it. I mean, we're having this discussion right now. They don't want to be talking about that. They want to be talking about how teams are going to be well. Will those guys be sitting on the sideline when the season starts? I don't know. I mean, there's been guys like Roger Clemens who came back and signed with the Yankees. Right? But I, I don't see that. Not unless they really feel that the market is going to change dramatically. And they have enough money maybe to sit on the sidelines and wait for that sort of thing. I just don't see it. If they miss a week or two, I mean, pitchers and catchers are reporting right now. Position players aren't really going to start being there for a little bit. You know, did they, is it going to hurt them to miss a week? Probably not, you know. Um, so I think something's going to move here in a little bit. What a little bit is, is the, I think the overarching question. Maury Brown, he is a baseball writer with USA Today, with a bunch of others. Uh, You can read him there. Maury, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, here's two things to consider when you've got two of the biggest free agents, potential, I mean, uh, who were positioned as two of the biggest free agents of all time still out there. One of them is, I do find it hard to believe that they will not be playing soon somewhere because... Think of the blow to their ego and to their brand if they're not playing, that nobody was willing to give them. They will find somewhere, maybe a little bit less money, maybe they go back. I cannot envision either of these two guys missing games to start the season. That just seems... How does Bryce Harper 
continue to sell the Bryce Harper brand if he's not playing because no team was willing to dip into their checkbook enough for him. Even though the Nationals offered him $300 million, so there's that. Uh, The other side of this, keep one thing about numbers in mind. You may also make the case that they have over-positioned and oversold themselves. Bryce Harper won the National League MVP in 2015. Since then, in the three years since, has not finished in the top 10. Can, is it a fair argument then that he's one of the best players in baseball? Discuss among yourselves. Manny Machado finished fifth in 2016, has not finished in the top 10 in either of the two years since. Mike Trout, who we mentioned, would have no problem, I'm convinced, signing a contract. I, you just wonder, when we're, when we're at the point now when we are talking about 300, 400, $450 million contracts, which is what they were talking about, man, you better be, I would think, you'd better be so special that you're a once-in-a-generation player. I'm not sure either of these guys is a once-in-a-generation player. They're good players. There's no question. They're very good players. Are they going to end up on the Blue Jays? Maybe the Blue Jays will come out of the woodwork and sign both of them. No. Again, any talk about the Blue Jays this year, I almost feel like we should have the Benny Hill soundtrack playing in the background (laughs) because that's what kind of year it's going to be. But I don't think we're going to see Bryce Harper or Manny Machado or Dallas Keuchel or anyone else on them while these guys still wait. It's an, it's a really interesting conundrum though for Major League Baseball. Some of their best players potentially sitting out for a while. The Scott Thompson Show. Weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.